you know, my one standing joke is I think I did something really bad in a previous life. <laughs> <laughs> to be made the editor of a Catholic newspaper. This, I, I know this is not um, Orthodox, Catholic or even Christian faith, uh, but all the available evidence seems to <laughs> fit the picture. I, I think I was probably a Viking or something. I was running around um, burning down monasteries and right. so on. And this is your punishment. Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is titled Old News, not so much a topic about the news, but about the various ways we get the news, how we access it, the kind of skills and talents and things to look for in the news. I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by Ryan Galliott, artist resident geek and co-host. Hi, Peter. And by our special guest, Peter Rosengren, who is the editor of The Catholic Weekly and has been around the traps in different editorial roles in journalism. Welcome, Peter. Great to be here, Peter. Excellent. And uh, full disclosure, Peter and I have enjoyed many debates over various uh, bad habits (laughs) (laughs) over the years and enjoyed um, working with him in various ways in The Catholic Weekly. Well, I think the last... Bad habit was uh, Thai food, wasn't it? I think it it was, yes, Thai food. That's it. That's probably the least bad habit we've mutually indulged in. Well, it's a bad habit that's a good one to have. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) If if Curry's the worst, it gets that's a good thing. Before we get started, just a reminder that if you like the show, you should subscribe to the podcast on your podcast app. That way you won't miss an episode. So, old news. What do we mean by that? Now, it's a bit of a pun on the fact that a lot of people think that newspapers or print media is an old thing and it's dying. So first thing we want to talk about is what's the ideal? What's what's the, the good part of or how do you know something's a good newspaper? And then we'll get into uh, the, f- the future, mm, if you like, of yeah. newspapers. So to start off with, I'll throw this one at you, Peter. What makes a good newspaper? Well, that's, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I belong to that unusual group of people who uh, I'm in love with print. Right, and I know I know there's this whole debate that's going on about whether print will survive, right? Uh, because of online and everything like that. And when you say print, is it just the physical nature of it? So you've got a book in your hand, or you're talking about the the spreadsheet, the broadsheet sort of newspaper? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, personally, I'm in love with all of them. I love reading books. I can't read e-books. I just right. can't do it. I, I, okay. I belong to that generation. Have you tried a Kindle? Yeah, I've tried a Kindle. Was it a paperwhite? Sorry to be an advertisement. Yeah, it was a paperwhite. If I, I think I know what you mean by that. Um, mm. I just belong to that generation, which is pre-digital, right. really. You know, I've still got cameras at home that, that use film, and I don't have digital <laughs> cameras. <laughs> where do you get them done? I don't even know where to get the oh, services. It's, it's just getting expensive. Yeah. Look, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I, I think that print and digital complement each other. Okay. I think... Print will survive. If you go down to the news agency around the corner from the building in which we're sitting mm-hmm. and you look at all the magazine racks, they're full of very big, very colourful, beautifully printed magazines on all sorts of subjects. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about that is if you were stand, to stand there looking at them, you'd realise that the people who are producing them are not doing it because they, they're in love with the subject that the magazine is about. Right. They're producing it because they make money out of it. Right. So I think that uh, print, without going into lots of specifics, has certain advantages over digital, but digital is real. It's the way of the future, and we have to use to harness and exploit the digital platforms. And, of course, that's what we're trying to do in here with the Catholic Weekly. We have a print platform. We have a digital platform. They go together nicely. I'm not sure that we understand it perfectly. I don't even (laughs) think Rupert Murdoch does. I think if Rupert Murdoch understood it, we'd all hear about it very quickly. Right. But in general, what makes a good newspaper? Well, I think regardless of whether you're talking about a newspaper online or one that you're physically holding in your hand, which is my preferred method, Mm -hmm. you want to pick it up and read it. Right. And you you don't want to stop and you want to peruse the newspaper and leaf through it and then flip back a few pages and go, that's interesting. Right. And then you find, whether it's online or or, or print, that the things you read – um, you, you're sharing in conversation 
right. with friends and acquaintances. It's the water cooler talk. Yes, yeah, the water cooler talk. Um, for me personally, it's, I just want to know about the world. Right. Uh, I want to know what's going on. There's a certain amount of decision making in what, and I, I'm, I'm asking the question from who wags, does the tail wag the dog Sure, here? sure. But, um, what does an editor think when they're thinking which stories go in? Because there's a, there must be a temptation to say this one's a really sensationalist story. It's not yeah. as important and relevant to their lives mm. as this other one, which is really boring. Yep. So, you know. It's a bit of a balancing act. Right. Actually, that's, that's a very interesting question. I've thought for many years that being an editor of a newspaper, and once again, whether it's print or online, it doesn't really make any difference. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like standing in the middle of a of a blizzard right and you've got millions <laughs> of snowflakes around right and you're trying to pick various snowflakes to put them all together to complete the jigsaw puzzle right um, in that sense it's it can be very difficult what do I look I for? I just had a mental image of you building a snowman in the blizzard. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I have a great snowman story but there's not enough time to okay, tell it. Um, Sorry go on. But um, I think that's the essence of a, a, a good newspaper. And so what do I look for? Well, I'm aware of what the key issues are in general terms. Right. Confronting the church. Editors, journalists, uh, masters of all trades. They have to know a little about everything. They have to know a little about everything. But they're not, they don't hold doctoral theses in, you know, if, if you're a religious affair. Well, you could, but it's just, it's not normal. Mm. Um, well, see, a doctoral thesis knows a lot about a little. That's right. That's right. Um, and you could write some very interesting doctoral theses about newspapers and journalists and editors. Uh, possibly one of I'm them sorry. might sorry, be. Sorry, you just said interesting doctoral theses. I, I haven't come across any of these. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, <laughs> you haven't considered my idea. Um, oh, it, go on. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it could be that um, if we shut all the newspapers and that all, all the newspaper editors and journalists. The world might be a nicer place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, we just say these opinions are not are not endorsed <laughs> by this Catholic life. <laughs> no, not seriously. Uh, journalism has a critically important role to play in our society, and one of the things I care very much about, even though I'm going a bit off topic in saying this, is what what I might call excellence in journalism. Right. But you know, what do I look for? I look for things which are currently in the news and which people will want extra information about. Sure. I think of them in terms of whether I can put them online immediately yep. or whether in the print edition of the newspaper they will still retain their interest and their informative value right. by the time by people the time see the newspaper. Yep. We're, of course, a weekly, so there's a lot of planning ahead. Um, and then you tend to separate online versus print. Yep. Um, I tend to think of the print platform as something – for the more serious reader, uh, for someone who uh, we're out mainly in parishes on weekends, right? So therefore, hopefully on a Sunday, people have got time in the afternoon to sit down and have a cup of coffee or a glass That's of certainly wine. Certainly, when I'm seeing it, yep, yep. I don't think there's time during the week. Um, there could be, but that that'll be the general picture for most of our readers. Mm. I think the online thing's a bit different because we're constant. Mm. Uh, we're always online. We're we're updating daily and putting it, things on Facebook. It seems to be a convenience thing too. I, I, yeah. When I used to go to work and when I was a lot younger, you'd you'd get your seat on the train and you're more likely to be reading the, the newspaper that the guy next to you's got. That's right. He's spreading, <laughs> you know, one of the broadsheets right across three people. And I remember those yet. days. <laughs> Whereas these days, I haven't seen a newspaper on a on a train for years. No. And you'll see, but you'll see people scrolling through something like the Australian or, or yeah. the you know the Sydney yeah. Morning Herald or something on on their phones. It's it's mobile phones. Yeah. Thirty years ago, that I I remember exactly what you're talking about because I used to sit on. Um, Suburban trains in Melbourne, right, and train platforms um, and rush hour, yep. and so on. And in those days, the big newspaper in Melbourne, or one of the big ones, was called the Age, and it was a broadsheet. Yes, I remember. So people in Melbourne had developed the technique, which was a really good trick, but it was very practical. They developed the technique of folding their newspapers yes, and working their way through the newspapers. <laughs> and there was this yes. constant folding, unfolding, refolding, so folding again. And you could tell the editors had worked with this because the, <laughs> the articles would be in the columns <laughs> to match the fold. Oh. Well, I used to crack – sorry, just a brief story on this one. It used to crack me up when um, we, I used to be on one of those platforms that 
the express trains bypassed ah, and went yep, through. Yep. And you'd, you'd have all these people who'd shuffled right to the edge of the platform to maintain their spot when the mm. train came. Mm. But they were holding up broadsheets. <laughs> and if a train came through <laughs> at 100 miles an hour, yeah, about you know a third of them would be standing there with only half the <laughs> after it had gone past. I love broadsheets, but I think this is getting off the topic. I yes, think the age of broadsheets has probably gone. Right. But the other thing that I look for, actually um, – is and, and this is um, this is peculiar to working on a religious newspaper and specifically a Catholic newspaper. Right. Um, you know, my one standing joke is, I think I did something really bad in a previous life <laughs> <laughs> to be made the editor of a Catholic newspaper. This I, I know this is not um, Orthodox, Catholic, or even Christian faith. Uh, but all the available evidence seems to <laughs> fit the picture. I, I think I was probably a Viking or something. I was running around um, burning down monasteries and right. so on. And this is your punishment. So the punishment. Because, you see, it's no surprise to anyone sitting here at this table or I would imagine to anyone listening to this program, but um, the Catholic Church is not, in our society, the most popular institution in the world. Certainly not in Australia, no. Yeah, not in a secular society. I would mm. say in countries very much like ours, which are... I tend to think of them as materially relatively affluent. Um, so industrialised, urban, predominantly Western, so Western yep. European, North and South American societies, Australia, New Zealand and so on. Mm -hmm. And so there is a real challenge here. And the second thing, um, so there is that, there is this whole, the modern era has moved decisively away from formal belief. Yep in a tradition like the Christian tradition, much less the Catholic tradition, yes. in those sorts of societies. And we've seen that repeatedly um, in countries like Australia with various packages of uh, legislation that have been passed and intense debate around mm -hmm. them. But generally speaking, the Christians are on the losing team. Almost always, yep. And that's likely to be the case for the future. So I'm very con – what I'm really working my way around to saying is – I'm very conscious that my job is to not only to inform, but to form, right. to provide mm -hmm. information about the church, which is formative. Um, and so when you're talking about euthanasia or abortion or same-sex marriage or, or the, the really any of these sorts of issues, I want to also provide our readers, usually through our comment and opinion pieces, information that supports the church's teaching or which I shouldn't say supports, which explains why the church is the way it is, mm, why yeah. it believes what it believes. Gives a context. And what makes that incredibly difficult, what makes that incredibly difficult is the very real phenomenon of, um, of things like abuse. Right. Mm. Um, I, I think Catholics, in a, a strange kind of place at the moment, they sense that society is shifting and the culture is shifting and it's not going in the direction they would like it to see. Right. And then a huge part of the problem is uh, just before we went on here, we were talking about the case of Jean Varnier. Right. Now, uh, by the time this program comes out, that will be several weeks in the past. But, I mean, Jean Varnier is the founder of a movement called L'Arche, which I think is a French term for the Ark. Yes. And he was revered by uh, by not only Catholics, but many people around the world. Especially for his work uh, and the fact that his work helped uh, many people of uh, differently abled people yeah. um, be incorporated yes. into communities and the church itself, yeah. That's right. So you have those things come out. Mm. Now, interestingly, I think uh, 40 or 50 years ago, um, Catholic newspapers would not report that much in detail on instances like this. Certainly if... Um, if a member of a religious order, for example, was convicted of something like this, yes. uh, you could be fired for reporting it. And that has happened. Mm -hmm. So that's what makes producing – this is one thing which makes producing a Catholic or a Christian newspaper incredibly difficult because basically you know that people out there who are critical of the Catholic Church can say, who are you guys yep. to talk to us about this or yep. that or something else? Yep. Look look what your – some of your – guys have done and of course it's gone it's gone uh, we have now living in the united states a gentleman called mr theodore mccarrick 
Yes. Was formerly a cardinal of the Catholic Church. Indeed. And that that's, so I think that's been very disheartening for Catholics. There's the reality of it. Mm-hmm. And then there's the fact that you're trying to propose something to your readership and to ordinary men and women, regardless of whether yeah. they're Christians or Catholics, mm. which is Christianity, Yeah, uh, the church. So, so, so if I can bring that back to the news, I think you're absolutely right that in the past perhaps they wouldn't have said it, but the very fact that you have, in fact, included such stories in the Catholic Weekly, mm. and you're not alone in that. The Catholic News has been quite almost brutal and more mm. explicit about reporting these things. In fact, the Catholic um, agencies seem to be at the forefront of uncovering it in the first place. Yeah. We, in a sense, we're actually practising what we preach, that, that yep. you know, where, where there's something to say, we say it. The truth to be spoken, we we say the truth. And even more so now that we've learned a very hard lesson. I believe very firmly that, well, really this applies to the whole media, but it it applies especially to Catholic media, Mm -hmm. um, that we need to be objective and professional Mm -hmm. at all times, but we also need to be prepared to be countercultural, to move to go against the tide or mm-hmm. the spirit of the age. Not just for the sake of it, of course. Yeah. Uh, no, not just for the sake of it, but because philosophically the Catholic media need to be committed above all other things to the truth. Okay. Now, it just so happens that we're running a Catholic newspaper and we believe the gospel is the truth. This right. is what we propose. Um, interestingly, religious media has been on the way and in, in the secular, or religious journalism has been retreating in secular media for decades now. And and one of the things that I think is very strange about that is that if you look around the world today, there are, I don't know the number and I don't think anyone does, but there are billions of people for whom religious faith is pretty much the most important thing in their daily lives mm. after eating and earning a living. And so the fact that we're not taking account of that or we're not even considering that as a major factor in world events or even in personal lives is a major oversight. Uh, Most people today Mm. would not understand, for example, that the assassination of Indira Gandhi, the Indian Prime Minister, um, several decades ago now, was not for political reasons. It was a religious assassination. Oh, wow. Um, And it was carried out by members of her, of her bodyguard who were Sikhs. And they decided to assassinate her because before that, she had sent Indian troops into the most sacred site for the, the Sikh faith, right. which is the Golden mm-hmm. Temple in Amritsar. Okay. And effectively, um, I think they killed people. It's a long time ago. But they were very violent and they, in, in the eyes of the Sikh faith, defiled and profaned. Their most, yeah. it, it would be like... Someone sending troops into the Vatican or um, into um, the dome of the, the mosque of the Dome of the Rock. Now it has happened, of course. I think Napoleon did it, and presumably one or two others have done it. And Rome has famously been sacked. But in modern terms, mm. a few people. And at the time that happened, almost no one in the world's media picked it up, right. with the exception of one journalist in California. Um, which is interesting. And so religious faith is actually intensely important in people's lives. Mm. And therefore, there's a story to be told and to be explored and to be shared. In fact, it's part of the story, really. It's not just about us telling a story about some religious people. Yeah. The religious element, we had William Kavanagh on the podcast um, oh, yes. recently, and he had a lot of things to say about the, the more we attempt to shuffle religion into the corner, the more religious elements and, and themes come out in secular society. Well, for um, several decades now, uh, t- 20, 25 years, um, I'd have to go back and, and check the exact date, but if you look at the Middle East, all the conflict that's been happening, it's not only political, it's religious. Right. Um, Muslim against Muslim, Muslim against Christian, mm. um, and so on and so forth. And vast tragedies. But in it, let me just play the devil's advocate here. Mm. Some people would say, oh, see, all we need to know about religion is it causes all this trouble and people mm. kill each other and, and sure. so we should get rid of religion. That's why we don't sure. talk about it. Sure. But clearly understanding it leads us to the sort of commentary where we say this particular kind of um, interpretation of this particular religion is quite different to this other interpretation and hence why there's a conflict there. Yeah, yeah there are... There are lots of things you could say. I mean, I I understand the argument, Mm. 
but uh, war is not peculiar to religion. No. Religion can be <laughs> taken up and used as a as as an excuse to enter into conflict with other people. But yes. um, the complete absence of religion has often been used essentially as a, a justification mm. to do the same and, in fact, far worse. All right. So we've explored the religious element of the print. Now I'm going to come over to my co-host here, Ryan Galliott, <laughs> and ask him as a representative of a slightly younger generation than me, yeah. and I'm saying slightly with tongue-in-cheek here, the online content versus the print content. Look, I'm I'm one of those people who actually really love holding the physical to, to read that. But there's no denying that when I am surfing the internet, being able to grab the snippets, you know, one story instead of seeing the whole newspaper right. is very handy. And it's easier as a young Catholic to share that story on my Facebook or social media pages yeah. mm-hmm. as snippets that, that will interest other people. Yeah, and no, we've seen how no they can spark news articles debate. And <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. But that said, it's it's also seeing those uh, religious articles. It's also in competition with what's out there now. In the you know me being a, a geek, getting the news about the latest Marvel movie <laughs> or TV show coming out or the latest Star Wars movie, you know, and and that rates on the same clickbait level as um, watch out the whole world's coming to an end because there's a meteorite coming. Yeah, that's right. Uh, by the way, Spider Man's coming out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But you were saying before, uh, Peter, that um, you know only one reporter managed to report on that story. Hmm. Uh, being in 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 the internet now, that story might have been shared once, but then retold and repackaged oh, by absolutely. how many people and and gotten out there so much. It, it's it's definitely you were speaking about the the telling uh, you know telling what happened, but also f- being formative in some way yep. Mm, yep. I'm finding especially with with the Catholic newspaper uh, that's something that I've been able to do on my page on Facebook as well as some of the pages I take um, take care of that it, it's been a way in which we can I guess share that message of Christ how much of it you know how we um, we tend to Google algorithms notice what we notice yeah right and they check what we click, and Facebook does the same thing. You know, I mm-hmm. buy, I think I, I bought something um, for my kids, and then it's within a day, no, within minutes, it's appearing on Facebook ads all over the place. Yeah. If we're clicking on certain types of news in that environment, really all we're ever going to see in the end is stuff that they think we're interested in. That's right. And so it becomes self-perpetuating, and there must yeah. be – um, so, firstly, your comment on that? You would- well, I mean, yeah, there is that, and there's people that will totally stay away from things like that. But then that also falls on us as practicing Catholics who might have access to this information to post it on our pages or to make comments or right. because that will turn up on their right. news. So there, there is a way in which, I mean, it's it's, it's part of that uh, sharing the good news. Yeah, so, so that question then throws to the editor over here and, and asks Peter. The former Viking. Uh, the former <laughs> Viking. <laughs> the ex-Viking. As I understand the, the laws of reincarnation in that particular theory, you'd be a worm, not a not a person. <laughs> okay, okay. That's interesting. Um, being a person, you know, is quite high on the ranks. Uh, oh, so well, maybe I was a very good Viking. I was unusual in that regard. <laughs> we might use that as the promo, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so coming back to the editor in you and asking the question, what? how great is the temptation and is it a good temptation or a bad temptation to pander to an audience, to say, mm. I know they want to hear this particular piece of news? That's probably the best question you've asked so far. <laughs> okay. I mean, they've all been good questions, but, but I think so that's maybe really... Maybe I'll get above a worm when I come back. No, well, <laughs> worm, cat, you know, yeah. eagle. The great temptation, I think, and, and in fact, this goes to my criticism of the state of the media today. Right. The great temptation is exactly that. It's clickbaiting. Clickbait. It doesn't matter, forget whether we're talking about print or, or digital. Yep. Um, it's spectacular in digital, but it's there in in print all mm-hmm. over the place. There is a kind of a paradox about the media. We have this very elevated idea of it, and I do believe the media has an extremely important role mm-hmm. in, in our community. It needs to be an, an independent or relatively independent voice, which conducts or subjects 
issues and topics to a searching scrutiny which is objective. Right. So the people can say, he said this, he said that, he did this, she did that, and they can come to some basic grasp of, of what happened and what they think about it. Mm-hmm. But the media, for the most part, exists to make money. Right. And this is precisely where, um, I think particularly in the age of the internet, what has happened, I think, is there's been there's this beautiful um, middle French term from the middle French, degringolade, which means a general tumbling down, a, a sort of state of disintegration. Mm-hmm. And I think the rise of the internet has hastened precisely this sort of problem we're talking about. And I think the real problem, uh, you know, personally, I think the golden age of the media may have been 40 or 50 years ago. Right. Well, you were saying earlier, Peter, that... Um uh, you mentioned the the term um, excellence in in journalism, and uh, mm. I mean I, I visit a lot of these fan sites as a geek. Uh, people reporting this or that, even in the news, and you find people that really don't any know anything about journalism writing what they want, and all of the, uh, a lot of these. You find a lot of journalists. Doing yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of these articles that I've read, I've, I've read, and they they have that clickbait title. Mm. But they might only have two points that are actually worth saying in two sentences and they'll mm. re- repeat the same thing seven mm. times. Mm. And so you've got a half a page long article that really is only two sentences long. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's uh, I think the the temptation for online and print to chase what the audience wants rather than focusing on what is important. Mm. So there's a, there seems to be a training element there that the training for journalists must include a certain understanding of the logical arguments, investigation, a responsibility course. to report the truth and to, to find those elements of the story which are of interest to the person, yes. not, not that will catch their interest necessarily, but yeah. which are of objectively of interest to their situation in life. But can I perhaps prod you again and ask you about sub-editors who... I don't know, this is a rumour, they write the headlines um, of things. It's not a rumour. <laughs> and so what we have is that I've often seen journalists whinging about the fact that they'll write a, quite a serious article and the sub-editor's looking for the clickbait in it and pulls it out and throws it up front. Of course. Um, and so a quite a serious article some, somehow becomes only of interest to people because it's about Fergie's dog or something like that. Well, there are certain words you can put, if you can work them into the headline, you, you're almost <laughs> going to guarantee <laughs> that scandal. people will say, what's that about? Yeah. Training for journalism was historically carried out on the floors of newsrooms. Right. Um, journalism is not a profession. Ah. I don't. Well, I don't think it's a profession. Aren't people um, trained as journalists? Yes, but people are trained as um, truck drivers and uh, carpenters and so on and so forth. I think of um, medicine as being a profession. Right. Um, legal practice as being a profession. I think journalism is much more of a craft. Okay. And journalists traditionally were trained and they were trained on the floors of newsrooms. Journalists did not have degrees in communications <laughs> or um, whatever else they're called right. these days. Yep. And I've got to say that my limited experience of graduates of media training courses have left me very sceptical. Right. Kids who come out of university believing they've received an education in journalism, they can't spell. Right. They rely on autocorrect. And therefore they can't express themselves They can't, in some cases, write a sentence. Subject, object, verb. Now, I don't have a brilliant grasp of grammar because when I went through school, even then grammar was regarded as, as unfashionable, but the man chases the cat across the room. They can't, it, and they have no grasp of grammar. Right. Mm. And I don't think that uh, media degrees are terribly helpful to anyone. If someone came to me and said, I want to be a journalist, I'd say think carefully about it because I think the whole industry is in turmoil and it's not clear where it's going. And one of the problems is both on newspapers and websites, this is shared across both, is there is, um, as the revenue-making ability of newspapers and magazines has been increasingly removed by the website, 
newspapers respond traditionally by cutting staff. Right. Less people are expected to do more work. And I am just astonished at the errors that appear both online and in print. Mm. And yes, I have produced newspapers <laughs> with errors in them. And you look at them and you think that is so basic. But is, is that partially because uh, the people who are looking down and deciding how many staff they need, they can evaluate how many people it takes to run a machine that prints a certain thing or how many you need to physically involve it. But what they can't or don't seem to respect is how many minds, how many sets of eyes, how much thinking is involved between, behind a genuine investigation, a genuine decision from an editor on is this interesting, is this relevant, is this worthy, newsworthy, that kind of thing. I, I think that would be a significant part of the problem because, as I said before, at the end of the day, uh, some people buy or sell newspapers. I mean, in the sense of buying the company or yep. selling the company. Yep. They're only doing it for one reason. Yes. That's to make money. Mm. What makes the most money? And, you know, and therefore an editor and a chief executive has to produce an annual report. They have to report to the shareholders, right. to the board. A profit's up, a circulation up, is it down? That's that's all they're interested in. So I think I'm not saying that's the only reason, but I, I think that I think there are other contributing reasons. One of mm. which is I th I'm sad to say that I think um, the younger generation of journalists who've come into the practice over the, in recent deco decades, in the last twenty or thirty years especially, they seem to me to to have almost no knowledge of history, which is very important for context. Um, they seem to have little understanding that they've become participants as activists for mm -hmm. particular views or beliefs yep. rather than people who, whatever their, their personal views are, can say, well, this is uh, the argument for, this is the argument against, or this is the statement for, and this yep. is the statement. What we have, I think, and it's a very widespread problem, is journalists who don't have this grasp of basic history and they become um, participants. They become, in a certain sense, the activists. Right. Uh, now... A rebel without a cause kind of thing. Yeah. It's, um, and, and you see it in all sorts of areas. I, I would say, um, I understand the, the basic arguments around, say, something like same-sex marriage. But I would say the, the media were almost universally in favour of same, legalising same-sex marriage and and didn't bother making too many bones about that. But, but I would say that they weren't just in favour of it. That wasn't really my, my beef with them because in any debate there's going to be people on one side or the other. My beef sure. was that none of the arguments were actually seriously entertained, as in there was no attempt to put the legitimate rational arguments. Well, in. look, it's easy to generalise and it's always somewhat risky. Of course, that's true. But then um, a generalisation you could say is generally true. So to generalise, I would say that um, the opponents of same-sex marriage got very little hearing. They were portrayed as extremist, dangerous individuals who were intolerant mm -hmm. of others. And, and the picture was overwhelmingly negative. It and was. those who were in favour of it were portrayed in opposite terms. And this is despite the fact that on a number of occasions, uh, I can remember one meeting booked in a hotel by many organisations that were looking at how they would mount the case to preserve marriage as uh, being exclusively between a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. And the hotel received death threats, bomb threats and everything like that. Yeah. But you did not see the media rushing to be sympathetic to those who had received those threats. Or to defend the freedom of speech in those cases. Or to cases. defend the freedom of speech. And, of course, freedom of speech is, a, is now, I think, is it's, it's the issue that's front and centre. Mm. But how, having said that, it is necessary, if we're defending freedom of speech, and this is very much related to media of any kind, sure. if we're defending freedom of speech, that we're, it ne it's necessary to argue for, not necessarily personally get involved in defending a particular thing, but yeah. necessary to argue for the freedom for people to say something we don't like to hear. Of course, yeah. of and, course. And therefore, and this was one of my... And also that, that when we speak... That was denied during the debate. I think it was. I think that was, well, largely absent. I, I agree, but I have to say, in fairness to both sides of the story, when I was dealing with some 
elements, and I'm not having a go at the Catholic Weekly here, but I'm just simply saying some elements of the people trying on social media to push the the pro-marriage case, I guess, and I mean by that people defending um, uh, the definition of man as, marriage as a man and a woman, that they tended to be a little bit clickbaity in their attempts sure, to, and, sure. and that wasn't helpful for their cause. So, because no, no, no. it only takes one or two little instances of someone being uncharitable, or being simply untruthful, or being scaremongering, or even and, violent or threatening. Indeed, mm-hmm. all of those things, and even if you, it's one person lashes out in that way, or one newspaper prints something that's uncharitable, it can be seen as, an, well, you see, you give these guys a go and. Well, that's interesting because I think this harkens back to the point that I uh, began with mm. about, uh, you know, it, if you ask me personally, I, I regard myself as a member of the church. Right. Um, I'm there because I believe in it. Yep. And I believe in it despite the human history of the church. <laughs> um, yes. Yes. And, it's and the only way to believe in the Catholic Church, in spite <laughs> of its history. In spite of its history. <laughs> and uh, yes. I think the, the, the biggest problem for Christianity traditionally, this would apply to every Christian denomination, including the Catholic Church, I think, mm-hmm. is that its biggest enemies have not been outside. Yep. It's from inside. So we have seen in recent years... The old quote, by the way, from Napoleon, that he says, I will destroy your church and the... the the uh, Archbishop says, not even we have managed to do that. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful... <laughs> yes. that, that, that sums it up. Yes. Um, I think Hilaire Belloc, the great Anglo-French Catholic mm-hmm. author from about 100 years ago, um, he expressed it by saying that, you know, the Catholic Church has been run since its beginning by such a combination of fools and knaves that it could not possibly survive unless it was divine. So the, mm. the, the, the problem... This is a real problem. So, I mean, one of the problems we have, and this would be common to uh, a lot of, to most media, I think, is we have social media. Right. And with social media, people can jump on and comment about something. Right. And there are people out there who, as far as I can tell, are, are looking at our social media because they're Catholic or Christian. Right. And they jump on and some of them can say incredibly uncharitable Hurtful things. Yes. Yeah. And not um, very well-informed things. And not very well-informed things. And um, it's it's strange because you could say they have good intentions, but that's not an excuse. No. That's not good enough. No. They, they, um, they're behaving, and once again I'm generalizing, but they're behaving in the opposite way to what the gospel yes. calls us all to be. So is there something about a way a Catholic goes about writing a, a journalist story or a news article or an editing in a, a newspaper which makes us uniquely and particularly Catholic? Just not in so much in our content that it's about Catholic things, but just if you're reporting on a, a news article that's just happening in Australia, mm. um, what would be different about the way a Catholic would report it? Well, the way um, that... that You've just jumped to the next level. That's even better than the, 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 the question you, I'm up you to asked me before. Advanced animal, perhaps a dog or something like that. <laughs> well, um, I think we would be talking about an ideal world. Yes. Because uh, my philosophy of Catholic journalism is different to what the Catholic media has traditionally been. Right. Uh, the Catholic media has, I, I think, traditionally been weak because it's focused on mainly on stories like. Um, you know, and I don't want to be unkind in putting it this way, but uh, how could I put it? Monsignor McFarsky's 65th right. anniversary of priesthood. Now, that, that's actually an important story. It is. And it's important for the Monsignor, his family, his friends, and all the parishioners he's known. Mm-hmm. But an endless succession of stories of religious anniversaries or anniversaries yep. of religious life. Yep. That's not Catholic journalism. Right. I, the only way that's I would... That's news about Catholics. It's news about Catholics. But that's what the Catholic media in this country and many other countries, I think at least in the English-speaking world, historically have tended to be. Right. There's an interesting side point to this too, which is I think the absolute best examples of Catholic media that I know of, newspapers and, and online and magazines, none of them are owned by the church. <laughs> It's true. They're all owned privately and run privately. Um, If you go to the United States, for example, you would have uh, the three biggest and best known Catholic newspapers, National Catholic Register, 
Our Sunday Visitor, mm-hmm. National Catholic Reporter, mm-hmm. NCR, the first one I mentioned is regarded as being quite conservative. Mm-hmm. The one, NCR, the second one, is regarded as being quite liberal or, or whatever the term is. Mm-hmm. And OSV, Our Sunday Visitor, which I admit has personally been my favourite over recent years, is pretty much in the centre of the road. Right. And it, it focuses on saying, no, we're not, you know, we're not conservative, we're not liberal, we're Catholic. And I think that's interesting, um, generally speaking. And I think, by the way, what you're doing on the podcast here is fabulous. My ideal Catholic journalism is philosophically committed to the truth. It's charitable. Mm. Being uncharitable is the big temptation of the Catholic media. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean not being critical, though, does no, it? No, 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 no. People, there is a, a kind of a, a tendency which Pope Paul VI warned about I think he was warning bishops, but actually it applies to the whole church. (laughs) And it applies to the Catholic media. He warned against what was called, what he called uh, a false irenicism. And he pointed out to be irenic is is perfectly legitimate. That means peaceful, for those of you who don't know. Yes, it means to be peaceful. It means to try and bring everyone along with you and persuade Mm -hmm. people and so Mm -hmm. on and so forth. But he warned against a false irenicism or a false form of it, which is... Uh, which he defined as um, if you can't persuade everyone in the room to agree with what you're proposing, you don't do anything. And he said this becomes a form of paralysis. Yes. Now, that's important in understanding the difference between commentary and opinion and criticism, which is perfectly legitimate, Mm -hmm. and news, which is just basically meant to, to be objective. And the big failing of the Catholic media over the last 30 years or so, I think, is demonstrated by the abuse phenomenon. Right. Mm-hmm. We, uh, the, the, as the church, the, 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 the reporting of the abuse phenomenon was really precipitated by a newspaper in the US called the Boston Globe. Yes. And it famously um, reported on abuse in the, the Boston area in the Archdiocese, which is one of the big, powerful, important diocese in the church in the United States. And in fact, uh, a book and a movie were produced out of it, the Spotlight yes. movie. Now, y- you could argue about how appropriate their reporting was. Um, and, and they certainly, I think that in, I saw a statistic somewhere that said that in 300 days, they published 900 articles on abuse in the Catholic church in Boston. Wow. Now, whether that was sensationalism, uh, I can't say, I wasn't there, I didn't read it, but Mm -hmm. the the Boston Globe precipitated the wider spread of of the reporting of the the phenomenon Mm -hmm. of abuse. And at least in a general sense, I can say, thank God it did. Yes. Because there was a real problem with the Catholic media essentially before that period being very much the in-house placid pet I uh, don't know what the word is. I'm, mouthpiece, I'm mouthpiece, mouthpiece of the institution. Yeah. Yes, yeah. the Monsignor says this, the bishop says that. Yes. So, so. Mm-hmm. so the Catholic media have moved together with the church a long, long way mm-hmm. um, and it's extremely important that that's happened. And it just it's worth mentioning just, I mean, for the sake of this podcast at least, that although it is a, an arm of, like it's produced by the Archdiocese in mm. that sense, the instructions we have aren't that the bishops have been pushed aside and we're now doing real kind no, of investigations. No. The bishops themselves have no. said, we want genuine discussion, we want genuine disagreement, mm. we want genuine um, differences of opinions and demonstrate how this kind of investigation, how, how this kind of discussion goes about. One of the most important articles I run each week, I think, is Archbishop Anthony Fisher's homily in the paper. And I, I've got to say... I know this will sound like I'm trying to flatter him or something like that. He doesn't listen to us, I'm sure. Okay, well, it's safe. <laughs> um, it. He's prolific. Yes. I wish I had Archbishop Fisher as a journalist yes. working for the Catholic Weekly because he just produces mm. and it's all very, very good. Yes. Occasionally... Um, it was very depressing when he was my doctoral supervisor and uh, trying, to, <laughs> trying to match his standards. It was very depressing. Look, I, I'm an editor. I, really, I say I'm just a parrot. Right? <laughs> I'm the parrot sitting on the perch in the corner of the room and all I do is repeat things I hear. <laughs> but even I have to reach for the dictionary occasionally when I'm – and mm. I find new words in the Archbishop's um, homilies. homilies. But the, the point is one of the reasons why I think it's important is he's the bishop. 
He's the one charged by the church with the responsibility of teaching, sanctifying and governing the flock Mm -hmm. that in the Catholic faith has been entrusted to his care by the church and and we assume by God. Mm -hmm. And his role as a teacher, as an explainer of the faith, I think is, uh, is obviously of fundamental importance. And so therefore running his homily Mm-hmm. is actually an important thing. And I'm quite sure, I don't know the numbers, but I'm quite sure that there are people in all sorts of unusual places who read them. Mm. Um, and I've heard some very funny stories over the years about people who read homilies. And yeah, I've even it received... It that his homilies are actually worth listening to and they're quite well put together because some of the homilies I've heard over the years might not make good copy. They're good reading they're good reading. His mm. his homilies are, are mm. good reading. I know that might sound like you're the editor, so therefore you have to say that. No, <laughs> I don't. I, I've I've been around the church in Australia, and um, he's he's not only producing the volume because he writes several talks and homilies a week. Mm. Now, frankly, mm. I think where does he get the time? Because he, <laughs> yeah, no, he has to run right. the archdiocese. But the the quality is very good and they're yeah. very readable and. You know, we have, I'm certain, uh, an older rather than a younger readership for the print platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that there are many people in that readership who who love to read his homily each week because it gives them All right. something about the meaning of their lives. By the way, an interesting um, note about the, the Catholic Weekly is, as I've said, we have an online audience and we have the print platform audience. And mm-hmm. we, know, we know that the online audience are not the print audience. Right. They're younger. They're yeah. the Ryans, the Ryan Bucks Galliots. <laughs> yeah, that's me. And so we have, without us ever intending to do it, we've ended up with two audiences. Right. Yeah. We've got one group of people reading the paper. So here's my question. Right. Here's my question to sort of wrap this whole thing up in terms of print media and, and internet media. Is it an age thing that happened just for that era and that by the time we get 30 years ahead, everyone will be on the internet or... Is it that when the older I get, the more likely I am to pick up a newspaper? <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Could yeah, it be yes. that when Ryan gets to down the track and he, <laughs> he just retires, switch, that he switches across to a, to a print media? What do you reckon? Uh, well, first let me say that um, I have to to uh, pay tribute to Ryan's artistic talents because I first met or came to know of Ryan. How many years ago was it? Uh, 10 years now. Yeah, 10, year, so. 10 years ago. And we had this idea at Easter to do a kind of a visual presentation of the last 24 hours in the life of Jesus. Right. And it was across a whole two-page spread in the centre of the page. Mm. And I, someone, um, I think it was Bridget Spinks, put me yeah. on to you <laughs> and we developed it. And Ryan delivered this incredible graphic which we ran just full size across <laughs> yeah. two pages. And I've never forgotten it. And I hope to repeat that again. But back to the question. Yeah, it could quite possibly be that um, in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, no one knows. Right. We'll all be reading Kindles or uh, glowing screens. Mm. Um, Whenever I hear that, though, I walk past a record shop and see them reselling vinyl. Yeah. Exactly, and go. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> Look, perhaps that's perhaps the the vinyl is a is a place to wrap it up. Well, Any last words, Peter? Well, yeah, I think that um, we shouldn't put necessarily all our faith in digital. Although we have to be realistic and go wherever everything is going, because we have a message mm. about the church, mm. and we want to use every platform that's available. I would use carrier pigeons if that turned out to be, <laughs> but we still have in libraries around the world, plate glass negatives from uh, experiences like the American Civil War or the First World War. Mm -hmm. And we have billions and billions and billions of electronic digital images and pages which are here today, but they're gone tomorrow. Right. So all I can say is, like everyone else, I'm waiting to see how it all pans out and I I guess I'll, I'll... even if reluctantly we'll go whichever way Mm. um, that turns out to be. But for the time being, the focus is, uh, for me, is we're representing the church, we're reporting on the church. I want us not just to be a newspaper or a news site for Catholics. I want ordinary men and women and young people out there in our society 
to either pick up a copy of the Catholic Weekly on a newsstand or look at it online. And if they were to say it's wrong, but it's interesting, right? Then I would think my job is successful. Okay. I think that's it. Cool. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. If today's discussion got you thinking or arguing with your podcast device, let us know. You can subscribe to our podcast at thiscatholiclife.com.au or on your favourite uh, podcast app. Keep in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or Discord and drop us a line at info at thiscatholiclife.com.au. Um, don't forget to write us a review on any of those things if you can. It helps get the word out. Remember that this is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast and we think that's an idea worth getting behind. So tell your friends. It is time for shout-outs. Shout-outs. Box. Well, over the last uh, few years, I've slowly gathered a, a number of uh, people, parents mainly, and also some friends and people out there that I've, that I've met, asking me to review games and television shows in light of, you know, what's mm-hmm. appropriate for kids and how to break it down while they talk to their youth. And uh, so I've been doing that a lot lately and I've been binge watching a few episodes of uh, a, a few series, I should say. So a shout out to those parents and, and friends of mine who rely f- on some level on my opinion. Mm. <laughs> that sounds like a business opportunity there. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I, I mean, I check the IMDb parents ratings, but yeah. I reckon you could have something going there. Oh, Decent Catholic uh, movies there, yeah. <laughs> Peter, any shout-outs? Uh, coming up to our 20th engagement anniversary soon on the Feast of St. Joseph. So, therefore, <laughs> he said looking sideways at the host of the program. <laughs> I just want to tell Monica I love her and I'm uh, glad we're together and want to be together as long as we can be and thank you for our beautiful children. Lovely. Thank you. And on that note, I'll shout out to all those hardworking journalists, especially the ones we had uh, Damien Fisher on, who's a, he calls himself a newspaper lifer, <laughs> um, which, which I had to look up after he said it. And those people who've worked to produce journalism with integrity, which isn't always the most popular or most financially viable ones, but um, we, you have my respect and please, please continue to support and, uh, and look for those, uh, those journalists. That's all for now. Thank you for listening to This Catholic Life.